0: And you may be seated. If you have a copy of God's word this morning, take it and open to Joshua chapter 9. Joshua chapter 9, as we are slowly but surely making our way through the book of Joshua. Uh, here in a couple of weeks, it will speed up quite a bit. Uh, this morning, we find ourselves in Joshua chapter 9, and we will look at the entire chapter this morning. I think if we were to be honest with ourselves, and I think this is true uh, for those of you who have known the Lord for a long time, maybe those of you who are here and do not know the Lord this morning, that one of the things we find the most difficult about God is His wrath. That we often don't know exactly what to do with the wrath of God. It seems shocking to us. I think a word to use as we see about the wrath of God is that it's, it's often surprising to us. We are surprised by the wrath of God. And as a result, I think oftentimes we try to hide the wrath of God. It's like that one thing about your family you don't want anyone to know about. We seem to feel that way about God. We love all these things about God. We just want to make sure no one hears about his wrath. That's, that's an embarrassing part of God. I think you even see among preachers and churches that they're happy to preach about anything but the wrath of God. They don't want anyone to know that this is a part of the God that we celebrate, that he is a God of wrath. But it's interesting as much as we might try to hide it or others might try to hide it, the Bible never tries to hide the wrath of God. Maybe no one that talks more about the coming wrath of God than Jesus Christ himself. You find it all throughout Scripture, but when you choose to preach the book of Joshua and walk through it, particularly when you choose to walk straight through it, you simply cannot avoid the wrath of God. As God is calling his people to advance and to take new territory, to come into the promised land, the land that had been given to them. And he calls for the entire destruction, the devotion of destruction of entire nations when you see God's people move through Jericho and devote the entire city to destruction, when you see God's people move through AI and men and women and boys and girls and livestock, all devoted to destruction, you just can't act like it's not there. But all throughout the book of Joshua and the rest of the Bible, you do get a picture of a holy and a just God who does pour out his wrath against sin and rebellion. But in reality... If you read the book of Joshua carefully and you read the rest of Scripture carefully, you will always find that there is more mercy than there is wrath. But strangely, we don't ever seem surprised by his mercy, we just seem surprised by his wrath. We read about the outpouring of the mercy of God and we don't stop and find ourselves shocked that God would pour out mercy, but we see something about his wrath and find ourselves surprised that God would ever do that. And I think that fact alone may reveal something about us. But how we feel about ourselves and how we feel about God, because what I've realized even in my own life and the lives of those that I've ministered to, that the more we come to see ourselves clearly and the more we come to see God clearly, the more we find ourselves more surprised by his mercy mercy, than we are by his wrath. That it is mercy which should be shocking and surprising to us. And that really is the point of Joshua 9. Joshua 9 is about the surprising mercy of God. Now Joshua 9 is a great story. It's one of the, the greatest stories in all of the book of Joshua. I, I will have to say, and I think you'll see this in just a minute, it's, it's a bit of a confusing story at times. We're not exactly sure after we read it what to do with it and what category it actually fits in, but it is a great story. And it begins with a similar theme in the first couple of verses. Look at what it says in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. It says, As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowlands along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And here's a key word. As soon as they heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. This idea of the nation's hearing about what God is doing is a significant theme in the book of Joshua. We saw it in chapter 2 when the spies went in and they talked to Rahab the prostitute and what she said is this, all of the people of Jericho have heard about what God did in Egypt and heard about what God did at the Red Sea. Remember, this is 40 years previous to this. We've all heard the stories and our hearts are melting and we're terrified of your God. A few chapters later in chapter 5, after the people of God go over the Jordan River, it tells us that all of the kings are hearing that God's people are on the move and he is part of the Jordan River and they walk through on dry ground. It is clear that the Lord your God is with you. We know that you're coming. And it says their hearts melted and they're afraid of what is coming. This is a common theme. Can I just pause here for a moment to say to you that it has always been God's desire to increase his reputation through the supernatural work that he does through his people? I just want to remind you that is a common theme from beginning to end of Scripture, that God desires to make his name known through the work that he does in his people. That it is his desire that we be a city upon a hill, that our light shine in such a way that people see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. It is always God's design to do something so incredible in us that the nations come to hear about it and this would be a good time to say amen. amen. I feel like I'm needing to teach you this a little bit more. That was just a really, I can't miss these really good moments. It just lets me know that you understand what I'm saying and that this is right. It is right. God's desire is to spread the glory of his name through his work in his people. I went to lunch with a guy this week who is, thank you. I went to lunch with a guy this week who is a solid believer. He goes to another church, and what he said is this. He said, everywhere I go, I'm hearing about what God is doing at Prince Avenue Baptist Church. Now, that's encouraging to be on two levels. It's encouraging, number one, because he didn't say anything about how I'm doing, because nothing that is happening here is a testimony to my leadership. It's a testimony to the grace of God, number one. Number two, people are talking about what God is doing at Prince Avenue Baptist Church. That's what we want. We say with Psalm 115, not to our name, but to your name be the glory. It should be that God is, taught, God is doing so much in all of the churches in this area that everyone in the community is hearing about what God is doing. It has always been God's intention. And I'm preaching a secondary sermon. I've got to stop. But they're hearing about what God is doing. And so their, their desire in the midst of that is to form an alliance. Verse 2, they, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua Israel, the more that they increase and the more that they advance, the more that the enemy seems to be coming against them. But after the battle of Ai, it does seem that the nations have a little bit more confidence. Because remember, the people of God lost the battle of Ai because of their own sin. They came back and won it later. But people are starting to think, wait a minute, maybe we could win a battle. But there is another nation that's not so convinced. They also know that God's people are on the move, but they don't think they can win. It says in verse three, but when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard, is the same word, what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made provisions. And we're gonna talk about in a minute what they do. See, two responses to hearing what God is doing. It's one message that everybody is hearing God is on the move, and if you are not with him, you are against him, and everyone that is against him will eventually someday lose. That's the message. A ton of nations hear that message and decide that they will form an alliance and stand opposing to the Lord, hoping that they can win. There is one other nation that hears the same message and decide to respond in the completely opposite way. They don't think they have a chance, and so they decide to do something a little bit different. They have crafted this thought-out and elaborate scheme, and it's right here starting in verse 4 and going on. Now, this plan that they've come up with appears to have started at the Gibeonite goodwill. Because it tells us that they made ready provisions and took, look at the emphasis four times, worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins that were worn out and torn and mended with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes and all their provisions all their food was dry and crumbly so so here's here's their thought they do know That God has told his people not to make an alliance with any neighboring nation. Anyone that is in the land of Canaan, in which is to be their land, they were very clearly told to not make an alliance with anyone who is in that land. They know this. The Gibeonites do. So what they decide to do is take all of these worn out things and old food and go in to the people of Israel, tell them they're from a far off land, and try to make a covenant with them. It tells us that in verse 6. So they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal. They approached him. And they said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country. So now make a covenant with us. They, they, They want to be protected. They want to be saved. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you live among us. How can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, we're your servants. And Joshua said, who are you and where do you come from? They don't directly answer the question in verse nine. They said, well, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. Here it is again. We've heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan and Sihon and the king of Heshbon and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said, take provisions in your hand for the journey. Go meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now and make a covenant with you. And here's what they say in verse 12. See, here's our bread. It was warm when we took it from our house. And our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it's dry and crumbly. See, these wineskins, they were new when we filled them. But behold, they have burst. And the garments and sandals of ours, they're worn out from our very long journey. So this is their plan. This is this this incredible, as all of the the people in this community got together, they said, here's our plan. We're going to get the oldest clothes. We're going to get some old food. And we're going to go and just tell them we've come from a far-off country. Now, you would think that that wouldn't be a good enough plan to deceive the Israelites. But if you would think that, unfortunately, you are wrong. I love the investigative action that happens here in verse 14. This is one of those verses You know how when you see someone else make a mistake and it's kind of funny, but when you make a mistake, you just feel awful about it? This is kind of one of those you just think in verse 14, really, like this is as good as you could do? So in order to investigate whether this claim is true, because they were telling a truth and a lie. The truth is they heard, they wanted to be saved, they wanted to get out there. The lie is they've come from a far country. So the thing to investigate is this, have they really come from far away? And here it is, verse 14. So they took some of their provisions, but not ask counsel from the Lord. You know what that means? In order to investigate, they took some of their bread, and they tasted it and they looked at themselves and said, yeah, that's old. <laughs> I, I think they're telling the truth, guys. Wait, are you sure? No, I'm serious. Taste this. Yeah, that's old. I think they're from really far away. As if the only way that they could have had this old bread to have come from a far off country. That was their one investigative action. Yep, old bread, let's make a covenant. Verse 15, so Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. The emphasis on verse 15 is significant. They made peace with them. They brought them in to the people of God. They made a covenant with them. They let them live and the leaders swore to them. They made an oath to save them and protect them and to clue them into the people of God, that they would protect them and they would watch over them and they would essentially become a part of God's people as they moved forward. Now it tells us in verse 16 that after three days, after they had made a covenant, they heard that Gibeon was their neighbor's. Now, we don't know exactly how this happened. We do know that here in just a minute, the people of God are going to be marching and advancing, and they're going into enemy territory. And what most likely happened is this as they're marching and taking these nations that God had called them to take, they all of a sudden come to an intersection where they see a sign, Welcome to Gibeon. They think, Wait a minute, hold on just a minute. I tasted that. There's no way. I tasted that bread. Welcome to Gibeon, to which they find out that they were not from a far-off country. They were actually very near to them. And it says that when the people heard about this, they still wanted to advance in their territory. They still wanted to take them, but they couldn't. It says in verse 18, the people of Israel did not attack them. Why? Because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders, But all the leaders said to the congregation, We've sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we may not touch them. This we will do to them, we will let them live, lest the wrath be upon us. Because of the oath that we swore to them, and the leaders said to them, Let them live. You see the emphasis over and over on the covenant that was made? Four times it says, no, we swore to them. Two times it says, we swore to them and made an oath by the Lord. In other words, the covenant that they made mattered to God. It mattered so much that Joshua was afraid that if he broke the covenant he had made with them, that he would experience the wrath of God. That's exactly what he says in verse 20. We will let them live lest wrath be upon us that they will stir up the anger of God if they break the covenant that they had made. Now listen to this. Did the people of God make a mistake in forming this alliance? The answer is absolutely yes. They were already warned not to do it. Verse 14 says that they did this, but they did not ask counsel from the Lord, meaning that if they would have asked counsel from the Lord, they would have gotten a different decision. This is a perfect example of Proverbs 3, of leaning not on your own understanding, but in all of your ways acknowledging him, and he will make your path straight. They leaned on their own understanding. They did not ask the Lord. This is not a matter of unanswered prayer. This is a matter of unasked prayer. They moved forward and never inquired of the Lord in the midst of all of these battles if this was the right decision or the wrong decision, and they absolutely made a mistake. But listen, they also made a covenant. And two wrongs never make a right. And Joshua knew, that even though they had already made a mistake, if they broke their covenant, they would make another mistake, and then the wrath of God would be against them. So they simply had to live with the consequences of the mistake they had made. And I, this is not the primary application of this text, but there is no question it matters right here in understanding how serious an oath is to God, particularly an oath that we make before God, like the oath of marriage, I always make sure that when I do a wedding, what I say is this. I say, this is a covenant you're not just making in front of other people. It is not simply a covenant between you. It is not simply a covenant in front of your church. This is a covenant before God. And what Jesus says is what God has put together, let no man tear asunder. And you may wake up the day after that wedding and realize you made a terrible mistake. And let me tell you something, it doesn't matter. Because the oath matters. And two wrongs don't make a right. And as uncomfortable as that message is, that is exactly what marriage is about. Is it a covenant before the Lord, an unbreakable covenant? Unless God breaks that covenant, which he can do through death, that is an unbreakable covenant. Joshua understood the significance of the covenant. And the result of this moment is the people were saved, the Gibeonites were saved, and they were included into the people of God. Now, I don't know if you noticed or not what a strange story this is because there's two messages in this story and both of them seem to conflict. On one side, you have a story about the subtle deception of the enemy. But on the other side, you have a story about the surprising mercy of God. I mean, did the Israelites make a mistake? Yes. At the end of the mistake, were the Gibeonites saved? Yes. So... So you can understand with me maybe a little bit how I sat before this text all week and said, God, what do you do with this? Is this about a subtle enemy or is this about a surprising mercy to which God answered yes? Both of those things are here. Think about what this means for a minute. Think about both of these things. Think about the subtle deception of the enemy that is here. Because I've told you this over and over, the book of Joshua is a model for us. It is a picture of what it's like to walk with Jesus throughout this life as we are going to take hold of eternal life. This is a picture of our journey. And our journey from the moment we come to Christ to the moment God takes us home is a journey filled with battles that must be fought by faith. Now the difference is this, our battles are not against flesh and blood, Ephesians chapter 6. Our battles against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places, our battle is not against flesh and blood. That's the difference. But there is a similarity. The similarity is this. Our battles are just as real and our enemy is just as subtle and deceptive. I just I feel like when we think about the enemy, we think about demonic opposition, we seem to think that this is a fairy tale, that this is something that isn't actually real can I just assure you there's a very real enemy that is very subtle and as John chapter 8 verse 44 tells us that the enemy's primary weapon is to lie and to deceive you and he is very good at it so first Peter 5 8 says be sober-minded and be watchful why because your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour that is a very real thing a very real enemy wants to take you down and he does through, through very subtle deception. So 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, we are not outwitted by Satan because we are not ignorant of his schemes. But sometimes I think we are ignorant of his schemes. And Joshua 9 is a good reminder that there's a very real enemy with very real subtle schemes, and he wants to take us down. And that's why verse 14 says that they did not seek the counsel of the Lord. They did not stop. Stop and realize this could be a deception from the enemy, and they did not take the time to seek the Lord. The result is they made a terrible mistake. I think it's also a reminder that there is never a time in which this battle ends. Can I just assure you from this? The more you advance in your walk with Jesus Christ, the more serious the opposition gets. I think we think that as we grow stronger in the Lord and we advance more, then there's less dealing with the devil. No, that's not true at all. As a matter of fact, there are some believers who are not experiencing almost anything from the devil because they're not trying to do anything. Right? Those who are trying to advance the kingdom of Christ and want to do something great from the Lord need to be aware that there will be more and more and more demonic opposition. And you don't have to be afraid of it, but you do have to be aware of it. You have to walk in constant humility and awareness that just around the corner could be something as deceptive as the Gibeonites. And although it might appear like something okay, it is meant to take you down. And you know as well as I do, one bad decision can change the course of your life. Certainly there is something in this story about the subtle deception of the enemy. But I actually think the other part is a more significant part of this story. And that is the surprising mercy of God. The surprising mercy of God. God is displaying his wrath in the book of Joshua. We're told often that these are wicked nations that have continually rejected God. They have stood against the people of God. They're walking in deep immorality. And although being given opportunities to be saved, they continue to reject the Lord. So as a result, God is pouring out his wrath. These are like the people in Psalm 2 where it says the nations gather together against the Lord and his anointed and their desire is to say, let us break his fetters off of us. Let's not let the Lord chain us down. We are gonna stand against him. And it says in Psalm 2, the Lord laughs at them because no one ultimately can stand against the Lord. He will always win. That's what these nations are doing. They're trying to stand against the Lord. But in Joshua 9, we get another reminder of God's passionate love for people and desire to save them. There's so many similarities between this passage and Joshua 2 as we see Rahab the prostitute who is welcomed into the people of God because her faith in the Lord. Here it is again. The Gibeonites are saved and they're secured and they're brought in to be a part of the people of God. What makes it so confusing is that they lie to get in. That seems like an odd way to get in on the blessings of God. I mean, doesn't that seem a little bit conflicting to you? Yes, the Gibeonites get in. This is great, praise God. But wait, the way they got in just doesn't seem right. How do you answer that? Well, you answer it by simply understanding this. The Gibeonites responded to what they knew about God. They didn't know anything else. What did they know? Well, it tells us in verse 22 and following. Joshua says, why did you deceive us, saying we are very far from you, and you dwell among us? Therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never do anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. Here's what they answered Joshua. Because it was told to your servant for a certainty. Do you see the faith there? For a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand and whatever seems good and right in your sight, do to us. You know, let me tell you what they knew about the Lord. They knew this. They knew the Lord was advancing and if they did not align themselves with him, they were gonna be destroyed. They knew nothing else about the Lord. They just knew that. And they responded to what they knew about the Lord and they took the initiative to approach the people of God, say that they want to be saved. Would you make a covenant? And they were saved because of the little bit of faith that they had to believe that the Lord was God and they were gonna be destroyed if they didn't come to him. Let me tell you what this reminds me of. It reminds me of someone who comes to faith in Christ simply because they're terrified of going to hell. And can I say something to you? That's an okay reason to come to Christ. I, I, I feel like I, you know, I, I grew up with, with what they call those hellfire brimstone preachers. That was my dad. I grew up in that kind of stuff. And everybody criticized him. Well, you're just trying to scare people into hell. You should be terrified of hell. It is a very real place. And if the only reason you're running to Jesus is because you were terrified, as Jonathan Edwards says, of falling into the hands of an angry God, then that is a good and right motivation because his wrath is real and it is poured out on everyone who does not come to faith in him. I plead with you, if you're not following Jesus, run from his wrath and come into his mercy. That is a very real and right motivation. I mean, that's the message Jonah preached in Nineveh. In 40 days, the wrath of God is coming. Repent, and they repented. It's the message John the Baptist preached. Flee from the wrath of God. It is the message Jesus preached when at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he goes, there's only two ways to live. One leads to life, one leads to death and destruction. It has always started here. It has always started with this message. There is one God, and you need to be on the right side of him. And he is offering you an opportunity to get out from under his wrath by receiving the death of his son, Jesus Christ, on your behalf. Because what happened on the cross is all the wrath that you deserved was taken and placed upon Jesus Christ. So Jesus took the wrath for you. God did not ignore his wrath. He poured it out on Jesus. So that Jesus is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because all of the wrath and all of the weight and all the consequences of our sin poured upon Jesus. Why? So that you might receive his mercy. He died in your place. What are the Gibeonites doing? They don't know anything else. They just know that they're in trouble and they run to the Lord and they not only get saved, they get included into the people of God. They get protected by the people of God. They get secured by the people of God. Chapter 10 verse two tells us it's not because they were a wimpy nation. It tells us that they were greater than all the other nations and all of their men were warriors. They just knew that it didn't matter how strong they were and how mighty they were and how big their city they were, they were still gonna be destroyed by the Lord because he always wins. With the little bit of faith they had, they ran to him. And as a result, they got in on the life, the peace, the presence of God himself. And you know what? Once they got in, They come to understand more of the mercy and the grace of God. Their motive was to to get out of hell, to get out of God's wrath. But once they got in, they understood more. And you know that history goes on to tell us that the Gibeonites remained faithful through all the generations. When the promised land was divided, Gibeon was given to Aaron where the temple would be. One of David's mighty men was a Gibeonite. When Nehemiah was rebuilding the walls, you know who was there? The Gibeonites were there among the remnant helping them because they got on all the promises of God. And I absolutely love verse 25. Look at this. There's their response. Behold, we're in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. Now, if you write in your Bibles or you got one of those Joshua notebooks, right beside that verse, Psalm 8410. Write that down. Psalm 84.10 is a perfect cross-reference to Joshua 9.25, because Psalm 84.10 says this, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. (laughs) That's what they're saying. Okay, servants forever in the house of God, we'll take it. That's better than dwelling in the tents of the wicked. They were thrilled to be servants in the house of God because that's better than a thousand years of anything else. Just a day, a moment serving the Lord and it's exactly what they ended up doing. So what does Joshua 9 teach us? Listen to this. I love this. I, I, I gotta tell you, I, I was in my office and praying over this and, and when I thought about this, I couldn't help just to get happy in the Lord because here's what Joshua 9 teaches us. Is that somehow, in spite of the Gibeonites' deception and somehow, in spite of Israel's stupidity, God still showed mercy to both of them. In spite of the Gibeonite deception and in spite of of Israel's stupidity in which the only thing they did is taste the bread and go, yep, seems old. God still poured out his mercy. What that means for you is this. If you are a lying, deceiving, pagan like Gibeon, there's mercy for you. And if you are a believer who's just made some really dumb mistakes, there's mercy for you. And you fall into one of those categories. You're either lying, deceiving, Gibeonite, like all of us were, or you're a believer who's made some really dumb decisions. And I just wanna say to all of you, that there is mercy for you. And the reason is simply this, because God is rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love. I wanna say to you, you can be sure that that mercy is there because Hebrews 6 through 8 tells us that God has made an oath and he cannot break his promise that the covenant that is made in the blood of Jesus Christ is a forever covenant. And once you are washed by that blood, there is a never ending supply of mercy for you. So instead of running away from him, run to him. Humble yourself. And let his mercy wash away your fear and shame. Because I promise you, if you come to him, you will be surprised by his mercy. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.